Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So I'm going to tell you a story. A very strange thing happened to me uh, several years ago at work. A colleague came up to me and asked me out of the blue if I had the ability to interpret dreams. Has this happened to anyone else here? Ever? Nope, I'm the only one. I told this person that I most certainly did not have that ability, but it was a slow day. If she told me the contents of her dream, I would be happy to just make up an interpretation. (laughs) Weirdly, she agreed and proceeded to fill me in on the details of what her subconscious was up to the previous night. I don't remember exactly what the details of the dream were, but I listened very intently like this. And because I don't remember the details of the dream, I don't remember what the interpretation I made up was. I do remember mentioning, just be sure you understand, I'm not speaking for God. I'm not even speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for anybody. This is just a good time. But I finished giving my made-up interpretation, and the most relieved look crossed her face that I've ever seen cross anyone's face. And she thanked me profusely. And I was confused. (laughs) And I told her for the umpteenth time that nothing I had just said should be taken remotely seriously. And uh, I couldn't talk her out of believing me. And then word spread around the plant that I had the ability to interpret dreams. (laughs) I promise you I'm not making this up. Other coworkers started telling me their dreams and asking for made-up interpretations. I kind of, I, it was fun, you know, it was, I, I like attention, so it's, it's all good. Um, and, and I thought about starting a business to try to uh, monetize this, this new and very interesting market. Um, now today we're going to talk more about Joseph and examine his life. This is a person who uh, did have the God-given ability to interpret dreams. Our text today will be Genesis 41. Uh, If you'd like to turn there and read along, it'll be uh, page 34 in the the black Bible under the seat in front of you. And so uh, let's read God's word together. Genesis 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the, cow, the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, 
I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants, he put me and the chief baker in custody of the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, but the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is the word of the Lord, and we give thanks to God for it. This morning, church, we will be looking at how God provides in the story of Joseph. God provides Pharaoh with understanding. He provides the people of Egypt with food during famine. And uh, my favorite part is he provides Joseph with elevation and vindication. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. God, we pray that you would bless us this morning with it. God, that our understanding and love for you and for your kingdom and for our place in it would be increased. God, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we go further, we should review. So last Sunday, before our fantastic picnic, uh, we had uh, the, the privilege of, of hearing what God did in and through our students and adult volunteers during the missions trip to Jamaica this summer. For the three weeks previous to last Sunday, we had been looking into the life of Joseph. We learned about Joseph's upbringing in a polygamous household complete with uh, some serious sibling rivalry and a lot of dysfunction. We learned about Joseph's dreams uh, and his brother's jealousy, uh, capturing him when he was away from the rest of the family and selling him off as a slave uh, to a caravan headed in the direction of Egypt. We learned about his experience in the, the house of Potiphar the Egyptian, how he worked his, up, his way up to, to being Potiphar's main man uh, and then falling wildly out of favor with Potiphar after Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of, of sexual assault. We learned how Joseph was then sent to prison and once more made a good impression, worked his way up to the chief overseer of that prison. And when we last checked in on Joseph, he had interpreted the dreams of two prisoners. We just heard about the recap of that, one of whom was Pharaoh's cupbearer. The cupbearer was released from prison and restored to his previous position in Pharaoh's court. And despite Joseph's asking for a good word to Pharaoh, the Bible says the unnamed cupbearer forgot about Joseph. And that's where the story pauses for two years. And we should pause there too and reflect on two years. Two years is not an insignificant amount of time, is it? This is two years where Joseph is running a prison as a prisoner. And I'll remind you, a prison in ancient Egypt is not a climate-controlled environment with concrete cells, two people to a room, three hot meals a day, daily recreational time. The conditions that Joseph was living in were horrific. And in the meantime, for these two years, his brothers, 
who have unjustly captured him and sold him into slavery, they're, they're free as a lark. They're in Canaan doing their thing. Potiphar and his wife are bebopping right along with no repercussions for the, the way they've treated Joseph. And Pharaoh's cupbearer has forgotten all about his prison buddy. And for two years, Joseph sits there. Two full rotations of the earth around the sun. 24 months, 104 weeks, 730 days. I did the math. Nobody check it. This time is in addition to the time Joseph had already spent in prison. Joseph had been in Egypt probably 12 or 13 years at this point in his life. If I'm in this situation instead of Joseph, I'm furious. Every day that goes by, I'm getting madder and madder. I have a propensity to get really indignant and self-righteous when the least little injustice occurs at my expense. Maybe some of you identify with it. I won't ask you to raise your hands. If somebody cuts me off on the road or pulls out in front of me, I am fighting mad. If I get passed over for a promotion at work, I feel like I'm ready to quit. I never do. I just feel like it. I'm not proud of these tendencies, but I have them anyway. I'll admit that to you this morning. But these are micro-injustices. These are the smallest of small potatoes compared to what Joseph is going through. And we see a glimpse of Joseph's character in what happens next. Because Pharaoh's had a couple of dreams in one night. And Pharaoh has had his best guys try to crack exactly what these dreams mean. But each of these magicians and each of these wise men has come up short. And as a last resort, Joseph has been called up out of prison to help. And the passage marches on. Joseph is cleaned up and brought before a Pharaoh who is very eager to figure out exactly what his dreams mean. And Joseph very maturely points out that the interpretation will not come directly from him, but from God. Verse 16, it says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh the favorable answer. Isn't it wonderful that Joseph's very first words to such a powerful man are about God's goodness? Pharaoh recounts his visions to Joseph. We won't go through all the plump cow, skinny cow details again. Um, we went through that once already. But he emphasizes at the end of the retelling of his dream that none of his uh, crack magicians or wise men had any success interpreting these dreams. All right, now these magicians and wise men, Pastor Scott did a great job explaining this several weeks ago. Um, they're kind of, uh, think of them as the ancient version of the modern day data jockey, right? Think Jonah Hill's character in Moneyball. They're taking details that, you know, kind of seem cursory and making sense of them, you know, putting them all together, uh, clumping them together in such a way that, you know, we have an idea of what's going on, right? These guys have their, their documents to reference, they have each other and other experts to collaborate with. They spent their entire lives trying to figure stuff like this out. Joseph, on the other hand, doesn't have any of this. He's got scars and brands uh, that would belong to a prisoner and a slave. He's got a freshly shaved head and a new set of clothes. But Joseph has something more powerful than all the religious texts and writings that the magicians and the wise men had. He had something more powerful than pagan religious rituals, more powerful than an entire court full of men trained to do the one thing they couldn't seem to do. Joseph was filled with the spirit of the living God. Joseph knew that God knew what was going on. 
I want to camp out here because this principle applies to our lives as the follower of Jesus. We have the problem of Pharaoh, right? We don't know. And particularly, we don't know what the future holds. We can all relate to this. We have a culture that has invested trillions of dollars in weather predicting equipment, technology, education. Many of us use the, the weather forecasting resources just habitually to check to see what the forecast is for days. We're going to be inside all day, right? Um, as a sports fan, I love people who try to predict the future in sports. One of the most surreal events of the year is the NFL Combine. Anybody ever watch the NFL Combine? Nope, I'm the only one again. All right, one brave soul in the back there. This is an event where college football players who want to be drafted by NFL teams are subjected to a series of athletic tests and interviews with team scouts, psychologists, coaches, and general managers. Millions and millions and millions of dollars are pumped into this pageant of jocks. And many people in the league will tell you that the events like this tell them almost nothing about prospective players. And people who study NFL teams' uh, level of success in drafting these players will tell you that almost all teams are objectively terrible evaluators of talent at the collegiate level. For all the time and effort spent trying to predict who will and won't succeed in the big leagues, picking NFL players in the draft is a lot like playing Lorette. It's all about the luck of the draw. So trying to figure out the future not only is futile, it's often fun, all right? I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Actually, no, keep your hands down. This is embarrassing. How many of us participated in this week or saw evidence of people using that face app to figure out exactly how old they're going to look in 50 years? Yeah? All right? All right. If you did that, you know, your identity belongs to the Russians now, apparently. Let's <laughs> look it up. I'm sorry to inform you of that. Uh, you know, people like to guess at the future. Sports betting has taken off like crazy in recent years, especially daily fantasy sites. Uh, people dedicate uh, huge portions of their lives trying to figure out what the stock market is going to do next. Pollsters and political analysts are trying to figure out who's going to win the next election. Scientists are spending massive amounts of time and money trying to figure out exactly what's going on with our climate on a global scale. We all want to know what the future holds. And, you know, these pursuits aren't all bad, right? But church, we would do well to remember the words of Joseph that interpretations belong to God. <laughs> interpretations belong to God. This is the great hope for followers of the one true God. We can understand that all the intel, all the data, all the statistics in the world will not allow us to see the future clearly. But God sees the future. God created the future. God causes the future to unfold. God will provide us with the information we need when we need it. We don't have to be anxious about the stock market or the global economy or national politics or international geopolitics or the NFL draft. We don't have to participate in, in sacrificing pieces of our humanity on the altar of data. God knows what's going on. He's in control. He's working all things for his ultimate glory. And he's invited us to participate in that glory with him. May we choose to walk in faith, confident that the events and movements outside our control are well within his. The story of Joseph continues in verse 25. It says, Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. 
The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. And so there you have it. Joseph succeeded where others failed. Joseph has successfully interpreted Pharaoh's dream. There's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. The doubling of the dream means that God is set on making it happen. Uh, there's nothing that can be done. This isn't like uh, Nineveh in the book of Jonah, uh, where God's uh, wrath can be staved off uh, through the genuine repentance of the people the wrath is about to be carried out on. There's going to be seven years of plenty. There's going to be seven years of famine. End of story, Right? Well, not really, because Joseph has this fascinating cycle in his life. All through his life, he becomes the right-hand man to whoever's in charge. When he's still a boy in Canaan, his father Jacob uses him as an overseer to check in on his brothers. One of the reasons he, you know, became a slave then. Um, uh, when he's in uh, Potiphar's house as his slave, he proves himself capable and willing to take care of the affairs of Potiphar's house. When he finds himself in prison, he finds himself soon enough in the responsibilities of the prison overseer. We're not really privy to the details of how Joseph makes such a strong impression on each of the people in authority he finds himself serving under. Um, but we do in here. You know, Joseph is addressing Pharaoh. He is addressing the most powerful man in the world after being let out of prison like 20 minutes ago. Pharaoh, just one chapter prior to this, ordered the execution of his chief baker by decapitation and impaling, possibly because a meal wasn't prepared to his satisfaction. Maybe Pharaoh got a tummy ache. Pharaoh had the power to do that. Pharaoh's power was perhaps the reason that none of these court magicians or wise men would have just made up an interpretation to his dream. If they're proved wrong in some way, Ooh, the consequences for them and their families could be severe. But Joseph doesn't seem afraid, does he? Not only does he confidently interpret Pharaoh's dream, listen to this, he rather forwardly gives Pharaoh unsolicited advice. In verse 33, Joseph says, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming to store grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This is a bold move, church. <laughs> it's a bold move to say the least. Imagine with me for a second. You're in a crisis room in the White House with the president and the vice president, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, other important cabinet members, maybe some members of Congress to boot. 
The, the situation you find yourself in is dire. It's a national emergency, and you are surrounded by the most qualified people on earth to deal with this situation. Now, imagine that in the same situation, if you do or say something to anger the president or one of the other powerful people present, you will be not only subjected to unflattering tweets, but you will be, I thought you'd like that, you will be horrifically tortured and executed if you take the wrong person off. Is there anyone in this room, in that situation, who kind of takes over the meeting and advocates passionately for a particular course of action? Any takers? Nope, you're like me. You're doing as little and saying as little as possible because you want to preserve your own skin. That's what I would do. That's what you would do. That's not what Joseph is doing here. That's the, exactly the opposite of what Joseph is doing. Joseph is advocating to Pharaoh, a prisoner, 20 minutes ago, out of prison, advocating to Pharaoh of the creation of an arm of the government that will oversee the taxation of grain and its redistribution during the famine years. Ooh, some of you conservatives got like hot under the collar when you heard taxation and redistribution, but that's what's going on here. Joseph doesn't even wait for Pharaoh uh, to, to react to the interpretation of the dream. He just launches right into like a policy recommendation. This is a glimpse of what makes Joseph an extraordinary man. Because of God's enabling, Joseph has a clear-eyed understanding of reality and is able to speak wisely and confidently to powerful people. And thankfully, for him and for a lot of other people, Joseph does not meet the same fate as the baker in the previous chapter. In fact, Pharaoh loves Joseph's idea. We read on in verse 37. Joseph's proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments, garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Pania, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up the grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And this is how Joseph goes from prisoner to prime minister in a single day. Once again, Joseph finds himself 
as second in command, but this time to the most powerful person in the whole world. I think it's telling that Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph is filled with God's spirit. It's unlikely that Pharaoh, based on this one interaction, really understood the one true God. But the divine stamp on Joseph's life is so unmistakable. Even someone as spiritually confused as an Egyptian Pharaoh sees God's hand on Joseph's life. And so Joseph is promoted. There is public recognition that we just read about, much like uh, Mordecai experiences in the book of Esther. Joseph is given unprecedented power and a royal bride to boot. And if this were a Disney movie, Joseph rides off into the sunset at this point, and they all live happily ever after. But the Word of God is not a Disney movie. Thank you, Lord. Not even close. It says in verse 46 that Joseph was 30 years old when he started working for Pharaoh. So if he sold into captivity at about the age of 17, again, that means he's been a slave and a prisoner for the last 13 years of his life. Last, you know, three or four chapters we've looked at have been this 13 years of his life. But now he's been put in charge of a program that will last for the next 14 years. Let's put that in context. All right, let's say... You've been appointed by Governor Wolf to run the Pennsylvania Department of Education, all right? After spending the last, you know, five years in prison, whatever. You're in charge of all schools, all educational initiatives for the next 14 years, but you don't know anyone in education. You've got to start from scratch. In fact, you've got to hire everybody that works under you from scratch, people you don't know. Uh, That's a hard job, right? But now... Let's, let's raise the stakes. You know, let's remember, uh, Joseph didn't have the technology that we have en- enjoy today. So we're going to take away your phone, computer, automobile, and your literacy as well. So you have to communicate orally. You have to set up this infrastructure orally uh, without the use of the travel aids we have today. All your travel has to be horseback or on foot. Uh, that's really difficult, right? That, that raises the stakes. All right, now let's raise the stakes even higher. Seven years into this 14-year initiative that you're in charge of, all your funding is slashed to nothing. And you're still expected to deliver quality educational results statewide. That's just about impossible. Now imagine that if you fail even marginally, everyone in the state of Pennsylvania dies of starvation. All right, are are you getting a picture of this? This is a serious situation. The Bible says that Joseph throws himself into this work. I don't know about you. This does not sound like a fun job. I am guilty of skimming over this part of the passage. All right, yay, Joseph is vindicated. Now everything is daisies and roses. That's not the case. (laughs) He's traveling all over the country. You know, he is trying to mitigate a difficult, massive, prolonged incoming crisis. Right? He is taxing the living stuffing out of these farmers that are growing crops. He's building granaries. He's arranging transportation. He's storing the food. Huge, massive scales of infrastructure and logistical systems. And we're also told that Joseph has started a family uh, before the famine sets in. And we're clued in by the names he gives his sons that Joseph is moving on from the difficulties he's experienced in life and that he's enjoying some of the the prosperity he's enjoying in his new new position. And as time trudges on, the seven good years of of plenty come to pass and they are in the rearview mirror and the seven years of famine 
hit Egyptian like a, like a fist. And the banks of the Nile River do not overflow, and the, the fertile silt is not deposited in the Nile River Valley. Crops can't grow. Animals can't graze. It's a catastrophe. One year of famine anywhere is bad. One year of famine when you live in the desert anyway <laughs> is even worse. Seven years of famine in a row in a place like Egypt, unmitigated disaster. But God in his goodness provides sustenance for the Egyptian people through Joseph. So what do we do with this? It's very easy to look at this passage as just another Bible story, as if there were such a thing. One of the good guys in the Bible went through some hardship, but God made it okay in the end. Next chapter. But I want us to think about what didn't happen in this passage. Maybe you enjoy revenge less than me. But if I'm in Joseph's shoes and I am granted my freedom and given the level of power that he's given, there are a number of things that I'm going to do that are not documented in here. The first thing I'm doing, I'm taking a platoon of Egyptian soldiers, I'm marching up to Canaan, and I'm having some words with my brothers. Yeah, we've got some scores to settle, boys. After that, I'm coming back to Egypt, and I am having Potiphar and his wife thrown in prison, and they can stay there. And Pharaoh's cupbearer that left me hanging for two years, you know, he can, he can spend two years in prison. That, that punishment seems to fit the crime. And that is what those people deserve, right? They've acted selfishly. They've operated without honor. They've used Joseph for personal gain. They've persecuted him so that they could benefit. Now, the parallels between the story of Joseph and the story of our Savior are profound. Like Jesus, Joseph is unjustly accused, unjustly punished, and after a period of time emerges from the pit to be the instrument of salvation for the very people who oppressed him in the first place. I've used the story of Joseph in my thinking to console myself during hard times in my career. If I'd get passed over for a promotion or kind of seem to be slogging away in anonymity, forgotten, taken for granted by uh, people who I was hoping would notice me, I'd remind myself that Joseph endured far worse and still came out ahead. And that was a source of comfort and encouragement, and I think that's an acceptable application for this passage. But as I think about the similarities between the story of our Savior and the story of Joseph, I, re I realize that I'm, I'm not just Joseph in this story. <laughs> I'm one of the brothers that sold him into slavery. I'm like Potiphar and his wife because I've used Christ to justify and satisfy my own selfish tendencies. Most of all, I'm the cupbearer that lets far too much time pass without gratefully acknowledging what God has done for me. Maybe you can identify with some of those things. If you can, we can praise God together that Christ Jesus is an instrument of our salvation. We recognize that though we are rebellious and we are unworthy sinners, Christ took our punishment instead of taking revenge. As Joseph provided bread for hungry people in need, Jesus offered himself as the bread of life so that we would be spiritually sustained by him. 
This is the great hope we believe as followers of Jesus. We recognize the glorified Christ and we rely on him daily. Perhaps you identify with Pharaoh in this story, like God giving Pharaoh dreams he didn't understand. Perhaps you know there's something more for you, but you don't know what. You don't know what you're supposed to do. Yet you know God is calling you to something, but it's just unclear. If that's you and you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, let today be the day you take that step. That's what he's calling you to do, to enter the family of God, to be one of his beloved children. If you're already in the family of Christ and you feel, feel God's leading, but the call seems vague or scary, I just encourage you to do what Pharaoh did and seek out spiritually mature and wise, godly counsel. Our church is full of people who can help you along in your faith journey and, and speak to uh, where you are. Uh, it just shouldn't be me because I'll probably just make something up. Church, we have uh, looked at how God provides in this amazing passage of Scripture about how God provides Pharaoh with important understanding, about how God provides the people of Egypt with food during famine, and how he provides Joseph with elevation and vindication. And we rejoice because in Christ, God provides all of those same things for you and for me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we just we thank you this morning. We're thankful that you are the giver of life, that you sustain us, Lord. God, we thank you not just for securing our salvation, but for giving us passages like these, God, where we can we can learn from great men like Joseph. God, men who put you first. God, men who spread your love and your grace. Men who were courageous. God, may we aspire to that example uh, this coming week. God, show us the people who, like Joseph, we need to speak truth into their lives uh, when they invite us to do so. God, like Pharaoh, would you give us direction and guidance for what you're preparing us to do? God, like the cupbearer, may we repent of the times when we've forgotten about you. God, we love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.